Welcome to Zoe Science and Nutrition, where world-leading scientists explain how their research can improve your health. Our understanding of diet and health is constantly evolving. In the 1980s, we saw fat as the bad guy. Then fat caught a break and we were told sugar is responsible for the rise in chronic diseases. But what if we've missed something even worse? Could today's government food guidelines be setting us up for disaster? The godfather of modern nutrition certainly thinks so. Harvard professor Walter Willett is the most cited nutritional scientist in the world. He's been helping to shape government advice for decades, and he is deeply concerned by the latest discoveries from his enormous studies. Raised on a dairy farm in the American Midwest, Willis isn't afraid to challenge big agriculture and the latest government food guidelines. Willett and his team have shown how what we eat as children and adolescents impacts our risk of developing particular diseases decades later. But there is good news. Walter believes it's never too late to make positive changes to your diet to reduce your future health risks. In today's episode, we explore the connection between diet and chronic health conditions, discover simple dietary changes to improve long-term health, and discover what the future of nutrition might look like. Walter, thank you for joining me today. Very good to be with you, Jonathan. Brilliant. So we have a tradition here, which is always really hard for professors, which is that we start with a quick fire round of questions from our listeners. And we have some very simple rules. You can say yes or no, or if you absolutely have to, you can give us a one sentence answer. Are you willing to give it a go? That is a challenge for a professor. I recognize it. Will you, will you try? I'm game. Is our average diet making us sick? Yes. See, that wasn't so bad. Despite all the public health campaigns, is the average diet in Western countries still getting worse? Probably about the same, but some people are getting much better. Some people are doing much worse. If the average American improved their diet quality, could they potentially add as much as 10 extra quality years to their life? Probably uh, not by diet alone, but with some other health behaviors. I can see you just don't want to give me a yes there. Okay, I'll accept that. <laughs> is it impossible? <laughs> is it ever too late to change my diet and reduce my risk of ill health? No. Does the food that our children eat impact their health for the rest of their lives? Yes. Are there specific foods that might decrease my risk of cancer and heart disease? Yes. And finally, and you don't need to just restrict this to yes or no, what's the biggest myth about nutrition that you still hear today? It has been that fat is the cause of all problems. We're starting to get over that now, but that's still lingering. Walter, it's an 
absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. You know this, but not all of our listeners necessarily know you're the number one most cited nutrition science researcher in the world, which is a pretty big deal because there are an awful lot of those researchers now. Um, and I think really instrumental in discovering how important the food we eat is and our long-term health and starting to actually be able to understand it, not in just some very generic way, but really starting to try and understand specifically what it is about our diet. I also remember that we met in Boston with Tim very early in my journey with Zoe. And I remember how friendly you were with me, despite the fact that at the time I knew absolutely nothing about nutrition. So uh, I'm very appreciative <laughs> of that. I would love to start right at the very beginning, maybe, by saying, like, could you describe a picture of what the average diet in the West is like today, sort of based on your research? What is it that people are actually eating? Yeah, I think at this point in time, uh, most countries, most populations are getting roughly half of their calories from carbohydrate, but about 80% of that carbohydrate is unhealthy, refined starch, sugar, and potatoes. And I think now that we've cleaned up the fat in our food systems quite a bit, that probable more unhealthy carbohydrates is really a, a major issue. And of course, we're not getting enough of the health-promoting factors such as fruits, vegetables, and, and nuts. That's slightly terrifying that 80% of the carbohydrates we're eating is unhealthy. And I, I definitely want to sort of dig into that more. But before you start to uh, help us to understand it better, I'd actually love to like actually understand a bit the research that you're doing. So you run these huge studies with hundreds of thousands of people. And I think as regular listeners to this show know, you know, that's very rare. Most of nutrition research is done on maybe 20, you know, maybe 50 people over short periods of time. Could you explain how you and your colleagues are actually studying the relationship between um, diet and health and how, therefore, it's allowing you to start to make statements like, you know, 80% of carbohydrates that people are eating are unhealthy? Yes. Uh, by the way, that number comes from our National Food Survey, not from our own research. Uh, but the way we study nutrition is to gather, collect information from large numbers of people, as you say, several hundred thousand people, uh, where we started collecting data in 1980 using standardized questionnaires. And yes, uh, we've done many studies comparing responses to very detailed weighing and measuring of diet and levels of nutrients in blood and in urine. And uh, nothing's perfect, but this captures most of the information for most of the questions that we want to answer. And so we also collect data on smoking, physical activity, uh, other risk factors for diseases, heart disease, and cancer that uh, could be what we call confounders that could uh, uh, relate it to diet, but uh, if we don't control for them, could be uh, distorting the results. So meaning you might think that somebody's diet is causing their real health, but actually it's because they're smoking or not doing any exercise or, or things like this? Exactly. And so we can statistically control for that. Uh, but what's really unique about our study is that we didn't just collect data at baseline at the, uh, at the first time they participated in our study. Uh, but every four years, we update diet now. And after you know, 20, 30, 40 years, that's really important because most people, I think, actually do change their diet along the way. Uh, and not just their personal preferences. Uh, the food system is changing. Things are uh, different foods are available, and even invisibly, the production of a lot of foods has changed in very important ways. So yeah, we did an analysis recently uh, looking at what we see when we update the diet as people go along, and we see some very strong relationships with the type of fat 
in the diet. But if we only use the baseline information from 30 or 40 years ago, we would miss virtually everything that we've seen. And is that part of why it's so hard to really answer these questions about links from food to health? Because I think almost everyone listening will feel like they're used to this idea that every few years, it feels like there's like a new big thing in like all the newspapers and TV about some particular foods being good or bad. And then a few years later, you feel like there's something like else. Why does it seem so hard to just get a really straight answer? And why haven't we had a straight answer 30 years ago on this? Right. Uh, part of that, uh, there are multiple reasons that uh, some studies just have weak designs, not enough people, uh, just one measure of diet, uh, they can miss a lot. But this is also related to the nature of disease, basically, that, uh, for example, heart attacks, uh, what we call coronary heart disease, you need to be on a bad diet for decades uh, before you actually get a heart attack. And that's the reason why we don't see people dropping dead in fast, uh, fast food places. Uh, we don't see adolescents dropping dead dead. We know that plaques are starting to form in their arteries from autopsies, but uh, uh, the heart attack doesn't occur till again, usually 40, 50 years and onwards. And uh, for cancer, it's a little different. It's not just necessarily an accumulation of damage, but events that may damage the, our DNA back when we were adolescents. So we know, for example, that breast tissue is particularly sensitive during that period of life and factors that damage our DNA or that protect us from damage of DNA while we were growing up can actually be related to breast cancer and other cancers decades later. Uh, but some things act fairly quickly also. So we need this uh, studies that really go on for decades before we can get the the full picture. And then, of course, diet's extraordinarily complicated, that it's not just one variable, like a environmental pollutant, for example. It's literally hundreds or thousands of different chemicals in the foods that we eat that uh, act together, interacting, uh, that uh, ultimately relate to higher or lower risks of disease. So we're studying things very complicated, but what's usually missed in most studies is the issue of time. Because these things take a long time and also because you're saying that people's diets themselves change. So what I'm eating when I'm 30 may be quite different to when I'm 45 and again may change at 60. And so somehow you have to adjust for all of this in your analysis? Exactly. So what have you found? You know, we're sitting here in, in uh, towards the end of 2023. What's our latest understanding about the links between what we eat and our risk of diseases? Yeah, we've learned a lot uh, that uh, when we started back in uh, 1980, the general belief was that uh, fat in the diet is the villain, and it's responsible for most of heart disease and cancer in Western populations. And as the data emerged, that's not what we saw, that fat per se didn't seem to be related very much to any major disease for that matter. The in other words, the percentage of calories from fat and the diet wasn't important. But what did emerge was that the type of fat was very important. Uh, and it turned out the worst type of fat was trans fat. And most people had not even heard of it. And, and nutritionists weren't paying attention at all to that in the, in the diet. Uh, but we saw uh, fairly quickly that high trans fat intake was related to higher risk of heart disease. And uh, as time emerged, diabetes, infertility, other conditions as well. And I would... Uh, 
like to point out that uh, conclusions in general, because of the complexity, should not be made just on the basis of one study or even necessarily one type of study. Because at the same time, we were seeing this picture of trans fat and heart disease emerge. Other colleagues were doing some of the short-term studies that you described, where you take a few dozen people and you randomize them to, say, high trans fat or low trans fat in their diet, and they were seeing highly unusual, unique, adverse changes with trans fat and, and that kind of short-term study. Now, neither study on itself would be definitive, uh, but when you put that kind of evidence together, you have in short-term randomized studies, so there's presumably very little compounding in those kinds of studies, and you see adverse effects on risk factors like uh, the LDL cholesterol, the bad form of cholesterol, and bad effects on the good form of cholesterol and triglycerides in our blood going up. And then you look, uh, that makes you pretty worrisome, and it would predict probably that trans fat would increase heart disease risk. So you're sort of seeing this combination between you're able to see over the long picture across somebody's life, actually these people are having heart attacks and strokes and dying, but you're only observing. You're not changing their diet. You're just observing what they do. And then you're seeing these like small scale nutritional studies where people are really intervening, like with a drug test and saying, oh, actually, you know what? You give these people the trans fat and you see this like short term impact that looks very, very negative. Yeah. So that combination of evidence really could take us to a quite high level of certainty about uh, that trans fats are not good for us. And uh, uh, it took, and of course, it's important to reproduce studies, not just one study, but other investigators look at this and uh, see similar results. There's confirmatory evidence. And when you put all that together, it can lead us again to a high level of certainty in situations where we'll probably never do the theoretically ideal study where we take tens of thousands of people and put them on high trans fat diets or, and randomly other people to low trans fat diets and we follow them for decades. Uh, those kinds of studies are just not going to happen. Because it's just impossibly expensive and it's incredibly difficult to get people to comply, I assume. And stay on a diet like that for years. And so we actually did a podcast on trans fats um, with my colleague, Dr. Sarah Berry, a little while ago. And my understanding was out of research like this, basically um, trans fats have been removed from the food that we eat in sort of all Western countries. So this is was a really big issue, but is no longer an issue. Is that right, Walter? Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's correct. And that's an area where we made some great progress. And the nice thing about this was we didn't have to educate everybody. Uh, we could actually fix the problem at the source. I wish all problems could be solved that way. I was going to say, so that's solved. But the last time I checked things like, you know, type 2 diabetes and rates of obesity and all these cancers are all still going through the roof. So I'm guessing that trans fat alone is not the issue. No, unfortunately, there's some other very bad trends that have been happening, just as you described, uh, that looks like can counterbalance a lot of the benefits of eliminating trans fat. So what has been going on and what is this link between food and what's been going on with what we eat that we're seeing this like ever rising burden of these, um, these diseases? Yeah, well, I, it's multiple factors. And what we do see is a huge amount of, again, unhealthy carbohydrates, refined starch and sugar in our diet. And at the same time, while the fat is actually, uh, for the most part, pretty healthy fats in our diet now. So 
I get that leads me to the conclusion that at this point in time, this huge amount of unhealthy carbohydrates is a serious problem, and particularly you know, a problem when uh, the carbohydrate is sugar in the form of beverages, sugar sweetened beverages, basically. Uh, that includes the sodas that we drink, but if you go to stores, grocery stores in our country, you see huge shelves uh, loaded with these so-called fruit drinks that are really 90, 95% sugar water, maybe with a little touch of uh, actual fruit juice in there. And uh, these have the same amount of sugar mostly as a Coke would have. Something like an orange juice or a strawberry juice or whatever they might put, uh, whatever they put on the front. Is that what you're saying? Right, yes. And it's usually a a little uh, few tablespoons of orange juice and a a cup full of sugar that uh, would be in those products. And refined starch and sugar in so many different forms. But one of the things that's changing is not just the food, uh, but also aggressive advertising and subtle advertising. The food industry does massive amounts of research on how to penetrate our vulnerabilities. And, you know, Cokes are advertised as something that uh, there's friends all around that athletes drink this. Uh, and nothing could be farther from the truth. And this is undermining the health. They're basically using uh, advanced uh, psychological methods to basically ex- exploit our vulnerabilities. And especially worrisome is that a lot of this is directed at children who are vulnerable, who can't be expected to make informed decisions about the long-term consequences of what they're drinking or or eating. So you've got this imbalance. In your opinion, like the industrialization of the food and then the advertising against these is an important part of the the story of what you're seeing in your data? Exactly. That this uh, production, vast production of uh, unhealthy foods, uh, which are extremely cheap to produce because sugar and starch are very, very cheap. And so Putting those together in thousands of different combinations of colorings, flavorings, marketing is a huge problem. I think a lot of people listening to this will be like really clear about sugar and sugar in drinks because that's sort of quite easy to understand because it looks like something you, you know, we all understand at home how you can take a spoonful of sugar and, and you get terrified by how many spoonfuls of sugar they put in. But you've talked about unhealthy carbs and starch. Could you unpack that a little bit? What are the sorts of foods that people might sort of see on their grocery shelves um, that you're saying actually these are really unhealthy? and the things it's interesting that are at the top of your list as you're you're saying this is how I'm what I'm seeing right the sugar sweetened beverages are clearly the the single if you have to look at one problem that's the single most important in part because many people have three or more servings per day but uh, we've just published a paper a couple of weeks ago looking at uh, different forms of carbohydrate and weight change and uh, what we see is that Yes, sugar is a real problem, but actually a bigger problem is the amount of refined starch that we consume. And this would be uh, basically uh, white bread, uh, think other things made with white uh, flour, uh, white rice, uh, potatoes. Uh, small amounts are okay, but that's a form of carbohydrates. It's very rapidly turned into blood sugar. And I think that's really interesting because I think I was brought up, uh, and I think a lot of people listening to this will have the same thing that like, well, 
rice is really healthy. You know, white rice is this really healthy food. And I was also, I think about my grandmother, she'd be absolutely shocked at the idea that you shouldn't eat a limitless number of potatoes and that would be good for, you know, growing up in, uh, you know, she grew up in Scotland. That's like part of, you know, that that's healthy. Obviously the sugar drinks, they'd understand. So can you help people who are listening to this to understand, I guess, why you're as worried about these re- sort of what you call refined starches these things from white flour and white rice and 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 potatoes as you were about you know coca-cola where everybody like no one thinks that giving coca-cola to their children is a good idea but i think lots of people will be thinking oh well if i get them to eat rice i'm i'm doing great yes and in fact again when we started our work back in 1980 the american heart association and or health promoting organizations were pushing people to consume more white rice and, and pasta and uh, things like that because uh, they didn't contain much fat. Uh, but basically, in the processing of, say, a, a rice or wheat, uh, the first step, the refining, removes the bran from the outside. That's where most of the fiber is, that's where most of the minerals are, that's where most of the vitamins are. And so this is when I think about it as being actually like a little grain. This is like the outside bit that you see that looks makes it look more like a, a sort of like this. It's all the bits that make it look like a seed rather than the sort of the white bit stuck in the middle. Right. Yes, exactly. And that's, again, that's where the nutrients are hanging out. It's, in that, it's not just fiber there. It's it's the uh, fiber plus all these minerals and vitamins. And, that, and then the germ is also removed. And the germ is a little part of the seed where the embryonic plant resides. And it's amazing that that, can, that embryonic plant can be there for years. And then you provide the right moisture and temperature and it sprouts. It's alive during that time. And the reason that it's alive is that, and it can persist, is it's packed in fat. Uh, uh, and uh, because that fat can be damaged with uh, time at uh, bad conditions, it's got lots of antioxidants there. So it's a little sealed off package uh, that uh, seals out oxygen and then has lots of uh, antioxidants in there. Uh, and so the food industry rips off the bran, uh, rips out the uh, germ, and that takes away roughly two thirds of most of the minerals and vitamins uh, that are originally there in that, uh, that, that grain, that intact grain. Now, what does it do with those that bran and that germ? Uh, the food industry knows that that's very valuable in terms of nutrients. So we feed that to animals, and they go big and strong. So hang on, I just want to make sure I've got this. They they take the grain that they're growing, they strip out yeah. all the really good bits, including your things that you say that give us all the nutrients. They give us sort of the leftovers, and they feed the good bits to the animals. Exactly. Yeah, that and they doesn't make a double- sound like it's a great idea. That <laughs> is not a great idea, but that's that uh, a big chunk of that eighty percent of carbohydrates that are unhealthy, much more than sugar. But then it gets worse. Uh, then it takes that what's left uh, that what we call the endosperm. That's uh, and it's uh, mostly almost all starch uh, with, that's depleted in minerals and vitamins. And then it grinds that into fine particles if you're making flour. And those fine particles uh, create much more surface area. So uh, when we uh, eat that as, uh, say, bread or something made, uh, dozens and dozens of other products made out of white flour, uh, that starch uh, hits our stomach and our digestive enzymes uh, 
uh, can very readily break that starch into glucose. What is starch? It's basically a chain of glucose molecules. And glucose is the form of sugar that we absorb, and that's blood sugar that we measure. So you get this very rapid increase in blood sugar after consuming white bread uh, and potatoes, uh, cooked potatoes. If you ate raw potatoes, just fine, but uh, they're disgusting, actually, if you want to try them. <laughs> but, but, but just to make sure I've got this, basically they take this thing that's a bit more like a seed, the whole grain, they rip out like almost all the bits that have all of the goodness, and then they end up with this thing that you're, you're calling is, is mainly this, this starch, and the way to understand it, then they smash it up into pieces so that when we eat a starch, basically our body turns that into blood sugar almost immediately. Exactly. And that's not good for us uh, because we get a big spike in blood glucose that demands a big surge of insulin uh, uh, that our pancreas pumps out and that insulin does drop the blood sugar down uh, quickly, but then in fact it overshoots much of the time. And so we're often hungry after an hour or two after that. Uh, and, and in the contrast, if we eat the whole grain, uh, it takes a while. It's like a little time release capsule of starch. Uh, that brand protects the uh, starch from immediate uh, digestion and we uh, digest it, which di digestion essentially means breaking that starch down into glucose. And we get uh, a much slower increase and lower increase in blood glucose levels. And we, uh, we don't get hungry right away. It's satisfying for a longer period of time. And uh, it's not surprising in the paper we just published, there was quite a substantial difference in weight gain over time. Uh, between people who ate the refined starches and people who ate them as whole grains. It's really interesting talking about this. And, it, um, you know, uh, Zoe, sort of looking at your own blood sugar responses is one of the things that is sort of quite eye-opening. Um, so I definitely remember the first time that I ever saw what happened when uh, I ate white rice. And just as you're describing, it's sort of amazing. It was actually having a bigger spike than when I tested having Coca-Cola, which was not at all, I think, what I was expecting. And, you know, I grew up... Um, uh, as always, you sort of grow up with your parents' generation of nutritional advice. And my father had um, had high cholesterol when he was he was young, and the doctors at that time were giving the best advice, which was basically, you know, eat as low a fat diet as possible, and therefore you should eat all this healthy stuff like lots of white rice. Um, and and I guess my question is, if we had been having this conversation. Um, you know, even maybe 15 years ago, would you have led as strongly talking about unhealthy carbs as the sort of number one thing that you're concerned about? Or is this something that has been sh sort of sh shifting over the last 15 or so years? Uh, I think by 15 years ago, we had seen uh, this picture emerging. So it, it, we were seeing that. I, but uh, when we started our study in 1980, uh, no, I was, a, as a physician, I was. Uh, advising like you were describing that uh, uh, following American Heart Association guidelines that uh, reduced all types of fat, load up on these carbohydrates. Uh, in fact, it was pretty hard to find very many whole grain carbohydrates back then. There, and uh, that's one of the, it, it, not everything has been bad uh, over time that we, we've eliminated trans fat. And uh, there are, are many more car, uh, whole grain carbohydrate 
uh, whole grain foods available than there were back in 1980. It was actually pretty hard to find much of anything. So it's like easier to eat more healthily if you want. Is that what you're saying in one direction? And yet like the sort of the standardized, uh, you know, I see this a lot with my son who's, um, who's nearly 16 that it's really easy to also eat a truly terrible diet if you just go with whatever is sort of being offered to you standard and you're not choosing um, to make sort of these these healthier choices actively. Yes, and that's basically what we see happening in the US, at least, and I think it's probably happening in other countries. We are, as you know, we're not one country. Uh, Some people have sort of defined our country into seven different groups, but even more crudely into two groups. So uh, that uh, one group has uh, more education, uh, more resources, and they're taking advantage of this new knowledge. And uh, like the participants in our study who are all health professionals, we've seen a huge increase in whole grain consumption over time. And that part of our population is getting much healthier. Uh, but there's another huge part of our population that uh, has either less education or uh, it's a lack of resources to act upon a good uh, uh, no knowledge, uh, they're going in a very bad direction. So there's what we see is uh, the average means almost nothing anymore. It's, it's, uh, uh, the average can say the same, but you've got two groups going in opposite directions. Which is obviously incredibly depressing because we don't, if we think about other public health things, it's not like we say, here's healthy water and like deadly water and you just have to be educated enough to understand what to drink, right? We make sure that the water we get, you know, hopefully the air we breathe, all these things are are safe. And in a sense, you know, I, I always listen to this and I feel like um, it's one thing when we don't understand, but if the science has reached the point that it's it's really clear, something's going wrong, isn't it? When we are just um, delivering food that we just know isn't really um, safe, at least without being really clear. It doesn't mean that nobody can have something that's a, a treat by any means, but that as a standard diet that you're just going to be like, you are just going to eat all of this, it feels like it's all, it's really a public health issue. Over the last decade, this uh, sort of rejection of science and information uh, about diet, about vaccines, uh, you can see that showing up in mortality rates. Now, so uh, the, the, as you say, the ideal public health uh, advances are where we, we don't have to educate. In fact, it's invisible uh, and people only learn about it when something goes wrong, uh, that, uh, that uh, clean water, clean air, uh, you know, the fact that uh, bacterial control of bacterial contamination of food is pretty good, not perfect. But uh, enormously better than it was fifty or a hundred years ago. Uh, people can assume, uh, for the most part, that you're uh, usually not going to get sick. And Walter, you were just talking about like that you've changed your view very dramatically since the 1980s. I'm curious: is there anything where your view has changed more recently? If you were going to look back over, say, a, a decade ago, is there anything that you're now thinking a bit differently than you were then? Mostly, the more recent data has reinforced uh, what we uh, what we saw a decade ago. We're we're fine tuning this information uh, with uh, more quantitatively uh, reliable data, uh, like looking at red meat consumption, for example, which uh, is an area that uh, is 
high consumption of red meat is characteristic of most of the uh, northern European, North American diets. And uh, the benefits of replacing red meat, not with refined starch, but replacing it with nuts. Actually, nuts have really emerged as sort of the, if you don't want to look at a single food, one of the healthiest uh, foods, uh, replacing red meat with nuts, uh, with legumes, uh, some soy products. And, and I guess the, the uh, and maybe one thing where we have refined our information somewhat uh, is around the soy products. We did have concerns that high amounts of the phytoestrogens, the plant estrogens that are contained in soy might be adverse for breast cancer and some other hormone-related cancers. So, but it was also possible that they could be uh, blocking high levels of natural estrogens. And it turns out that the latter is actually what uh, what's emerging, mostly from studies in Asia, actually, where soy consumption has been high. That does look like a higher soy consumption, especially during uh, adolescence and young adult life as related to lower risk of breast cancers. So, so just to make sure I understood that a decade ago, you were like, maybe soy is actually negative, bad, has um, like cancer risk, and, and now you're sort of reversed that view and you're actually thinking that it is definitely not harmful, but actually pos probably positively. Some, some positive benefits, yes. Uh, although a decade ago, well, I would say it was ambiguous. We just didn't have adequate data, but there were reasons to be concerned. Interestingly, uh, there still is a lingering concern about very high soy consumption and cognitive function. Uh, that several studies from Asia and populations consuming really high soy consumption, and within those populations, the ones having the, high, the ones having the highest soy consumption, which be a lot. Uh, there, some studies suggest adverse effects on cognitive function. Now, I'm guessing that having having had this conversation, uh, one of the case, the amount of soy that you're talking about that people might be consuming in East Asia is off the charts versus anyone who's listening to this in the States or right. you know, yes. the UK or something. Is that right? So in general, right. they could probably be feeling they should be eating more rather than less if I'm making this practical. Is that right? Yes. And, you know, there's a general principle in, in nutrition that is sort of extremely simple, but I think... Uh, still valuable to consider is a well we especially we don't have all the data we would really like to have which is usually the case and that's uh variety uh so that i think as part of our alternatives to red meat uh not just only replacing that with soy or only replacing it with walnuts uh is not the best thing but to have a variety of alternatives some soy products some walnuts some other peanuts uh some beans uh, 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 a variety is good because you're unlikely to get too much of something really bad, uh, and you're also less likely to have a gap to be in your diet to be uh, missing something that's important. I just wanted to talk a bit more about the red meat before you switch to the alternatives, because I think this is still a live debate for some people, and um, I think you hear you're saying uh, you, you haven't really changed your view from ten years ago. Well. Could you help our listeners understand, like how how much should they be concerned about eating red meat? There will be plenty of people eating this who were brought up feeling you should be eating, you know, some red meat every day, and it has all this great protein. And after all, didn't our ancestors hunt meat? So how can it possibly be bad for us? Yeah, uh, not just what every day, every meal. That's how I grew up <laughs> in the Midwest. 
There have been concerns about red meat for quite a while because of the high amount of saturated fat and cholesterol in red meat. And uh, so it's, it's been suspect for a long time. Uh, I think one of the things we've come to appreciate, it's not just a high amount of saturated fat, but also the fact that there's almost no polyunsaturated fats in red meat. And those really help, they're essential and they have positive health benefits uh, beyond just being essential. Uh, they do polyunsaturates, lower LDL cholesterol. Now we also see they improve insulin sensitivity as well, which would help reduce uh, diabetes risk. So uh, it's that uh, proportions of polyunsaturates to saturates in uh, beef in particular, especially, that uh, uh, contribute to being adverse. So we published a paper just last week, in fact, an update in our cohort studies now after more than 30 years of follow-up about uh, 22,000 participants have developed type 2 diabetes. That's an enormous number of people, isn't it, to, to be studying? Uh, sadly, I mean, to think of the health burden of it, uh, you know, all individual cases, and, uh, people who have health burden, and then collectively 22,000 participants uh, developing type 2 diabetes just during the time we've been watching. The studies are really only possible because of the incredible contribution of the participants of the studies. It would not be possible without that and their willingness to share their experiences that together we learn a lot. But when we have so many participants, uh, we can see even uh, uh, consumption of red meat about twice a week, uh, we could see a statistically significant increase in uh, risk of type 2 diabetes. And again, part of the confusion comes because uh, most studies have only compared red meat to the rest of the diet. Sometimes you see not much increase in risk or a weak increase in risk. But if the rest of the diet's not very healthy, you're basically saying red meat is about as bad as the rest of the diet. And so uh, the comparison in nutrition is always an issue uh, that we have. We physiologically, unconsciously control our total caloric intake pretty tightly over a day, over a month, over a year, within about 1% uh, of uh, intake uh, versus what we burn off uh, by physical activity. Basically, the whole plate is the same size. So if we remove something, we're going to replace it with something else. And that replacement, of course, makes a huge difference. So if we replace that red meat with refined starches, that would not be a good replacement. But if we replace it with some mix of plant protein sources like uh, nuts, legumes, uh, soy products, that turns out to be a good replacement. Is this important, I guess, Walter, is a question, because you could say like it's better, but it makes almost no difference, in fact, to your likelihood of getting type 2 diabetes or having heart disease or any of these other sorts of things. Like how bad is the red meat and how much better is it if you suddenly, because, you know, you're, you're, I think, talking about reducing it to, you know, below twice a week, and you said you got brought up eating it three times a day. This is a pretty dramatic change. Right. So how bad is the meat? How bad is the red meat? Yeah, it's not like smoking and lung cancer where there's sort of one thing that is the overwhelmingly dominant cause. And that uh, that's true of most things we look at. There's no one factor that describes it. And uh, the increase in risk is, in I would say, sort of in the moderate category. But when you put a whole lot of moderate risk together, then you get a big risk. And we can see if we put uh, the diet and lifestyle factors together, we could prevent over 90% of type 2 diabetes. So if you changed all of the diet and lifestyle factors from sort of like the worst to the best, 
you could reduce the amount of type 2 diabetes by tenfold to just 10% of yeah, residents. Yeah, instead of 22,000 cases, we could have 2,000 cases. Uh, that is absolutely so, extraordinary. And it doesn't obviously mean that people are responsible for this, right? Because this right. is the environment they're living in and people don't always have either the understanding or the ability to do all this. I think when you're not being judgmental about that, but just sort of talking about the difference between maybe the food that we're eating now and, and the environment we're in compared to what we might have had a, you know, a few hundred years ago. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. This, I'm not uh, blaming or pointing a finger at the people who developed it because many of them, that unfortunate thing is many of them have been doing what they were told to do by the uh, by the health community. I mean, this is one of the most frustrating things, isn't it? Is that people are, feel like they're constantly trying to do what they're told and then we go back and say, well, actually, maybe what we told you was worse. So just to wrap up on the red meat, because I'm, I'm going to make my son listen to this bit afterwards. Um, despite all the stories that like, you know, actually it's really important. Again, I think of my grandmother who's like, it's, make sure you eat your meat. You know, you're going to never grow up to be big and strong unless you eat this. This is more like a treat because you like it if, if you like it than it is like an essential healthy thing that you should be an important part of your diet. Now, yes, exactly. Say one serving a week is uh, very it, it, some people would consider this radical. Uh, if I had said this when I was growing up, uh, it went a bit, but uh, it's actually very consistent with a traditional Mediterranean diet and uh, the diets that many people around the world consume. And if you really like a big uh, uh, half a kilogram steak or even a kilogram steak, uh, you can have that once a month. In many cultures, uh, they do have red meat. You could have red meat almost every day but it would be uh, just uh, a small amount, maybe 25 grams, but uh, a, a little bit of uh, a mixed dish, for example. So there's many different ways of putting together this quite modest amount of red meat, but it's not essential at all. Last question on that one, Walter, because there'll, there'll be a lot of people saying, well, we know that you know the red meat that you would eat in the states that the sort of things that those animals are allowed to be fed are like a long way away from what maybe a wild animal would eat or even maybe what might be the case if you were in france or something that was more restricted is this just a statement about antibiotics and weird food that's going into the cows or is this actually broader than this and you see it outside it's not just a, a a product of the particular sort of red meat that maybe somebody might be uh, uh, getting in a in a grocery store in the states we actually can't study that very well in our population because 95 percent of the beef is not uh, grass-fed for the life of the animal but this is mostly something that's more related to red to beef no matter where it's produced or how it's produced. There's been a lot said, oh, the grass-fed beef has uh, m much more omega-3 fatty acid in it, a healthy, unsaturated, uh, polyunsaturated fat. Uh, but it is higher in grass-fed beef, but in grain-fed beef, it's, it's very, very little. So even doubling very, very little is still very little. That uh, just for example, uh, uh, a walnut, the same amount of uh, walnut, uh, has about a hundred times more omega-3 fatty acid in it than does grass-fed beef. 
Okay, so it's hugely different. And I have to say, I've yet to meet a nutritional scientist from anywhere around the world who's argued about the the positive benefits of the red meat from where they come. So I, uh, um, I wasn't expecting you to say anything different. Walter, one thing you haven't touched on is dairy. And that also seems to be one of those things where there has been a lot of change in view over... Um, the last 10 or, or or 20 years where where are you on that today right uh well dairy is i think perhaps the most uh, complicated and interesting part of the uh place <laughs> because uh there are definitely nutritional value in dairy uh and, and it, uh, milk is of course incredibly interesting because uh, an infant can live on human milk for six months and grow and develop with nothing else but milk. Uh, so it's actually designed to be fully supportive of young mammals. But is that necessarily something we should be consuming all our life? And also, uh, milk from cattle is very different than milk than human milk. There's uh, about uh, four times the amount of calcium, about four times the amount of uh, protein in cow milk compared to human milk. So uh, that if we think of human milk as the ideal, but still again, not necessarily ideal for a lifetime, uh, the cow milk is, is really quite different. And uh, it does have a good amount of calcium, and sort of uniquely high amount of calcium. And, and milk, that's often what's pointed to as being really valuable uh, and uh, necessary for growing children. Uh, but it does come with a lot of saturated fat, again, and almost no polyunsaturated fat. So that ratio is really a very bad ratio. And uh, we do see very clearly that uh, uh, dairy fat does increase the bad cholesterol in our blood. And when we look in our large populations, high dairy consumption is related to higher risk of cardiovascular disease and overall mortality. And especially if you compare it to plant source, plant types of fat. And again, like I was talking earlier with trans fat, there have been good randomized control feeding studies short term and uh, looking at, well, part one of the questions was whether dairy is cheese or is uh, fresh milk, uh, is whether cheese is better, slight difference. But the, in the study also included then fat uh, from olive oil or other plant sources of uh, fat. and those plant sources of fat had dramatically better effects on blood cholesterol levels. So you, you put our long-term studies together with our short-term studies, which are very consistent, and it would uh, say uh, uh, favoring the unsaturated plant oils is better. And this is really going back to studies of 50 or 60 years ago, comparing, the, uh, say, Finland with the Mediterranean countries, where there was a huge difference, about an eight or tenfold difference in heart attack rates. Uh, and the, the the difference was not in the type of uh, the amount of total fat; it was in the uh, type of fat. That's not the only difference, of course. Uh, differences in fruit and vegetable consumption, but virtually for sure, the the type of fat was uh, was a major contributor uh, to those huge differences. You touched on this early, so I'd really like to come back to it. Which was to what extent I should be worrying about what my children eat. And I think you said that there's some really new evidence linking what uh, a better understanding of what maybe we might be eating as children to our risk later on. So how much do I need to worry and what, you know, what does the latest science tell us? Yeah, I think we do need to be cons more concerned than we have been about what we're feeding our children. Uh, and we've actually known for a long time 
that the process of atherogenesis, of building up of plaques in the arteries that ultimately results in a heart attack, that's been going, that goes on starting from probably year one. And uh, we know from autopsies of uh, soldiers killed in uh, wars that the, uh, you could see the uh, plaques developing, uh, early stage plaques developing even at 18. And that means like starting the very first part of our, our blood vessels getting blocked, even when you're already 18, from, right. from the food we're eating, from the food exactly. we're eating, you're Yeah, that's not new. We've known that for decades. And so uh, basically the best thing to do is uh, to not begin that process uh, when you're a child. Uh, and uh, more recently, we've been looking at cancer and just starting to get data now on what uh, people were consuming as adolescents and uh, cancer risk later. And we've seen that high soda, high consumption of soda uh, during adolescence is related to higher uh, risk of colorectal cancer later in life. And uh, for breast cancer, we had lots of indications that that's a critical period of adolescence and early adult life. That uh, mainly comes from the American atomic bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima in World War II that uh, uh, women who were exposed to radiation while they were uh, children or young adults had, uh, a few decades later had a, a substantial increase in breast cancer. But if they were exposed after age 40, uh, there was not much increase in risk of breast cancer. So there's a critical window there. And we're seeing that uh, low intake of uh, fruits and vegetables, low intake of whole grains, for example, uh, uh, during that adolescent period is related to breast cancer risk later in life as well. Walter, can I just check? I understood because I'm really shocked by it. It's slightly depressing, unfortunately, but I just want to make sure I understand. You're saying that now there is this data looking at um, what women who, in fact, at the time were still adolescents were eating um, and sort of how healthy that that was is having a real impact on the risk of breast cancer, I guess, sort of 30 years later. And it's not just because they're on a, you know, maybe on a better diet throughout this period is better. You're saying that there's something about like, you know, the, the, the diet we're eating as we're actually going through puberty is actually shaping this this risk of breast cancer many decades later? Yes, uh, right. And uh, that, that's exactly what we're seeing. And when we look at midlife, we do see some hints of those relationships, but it's not as what we're seeing at uh, midlife, it's not as strong as what we're seeing during adolescence in terms of the importance of healthy diets. And is that only true for breast cancer or is this true for other things as well? You know, my sh I should be just as worried about my son right now who is, you know, growing inches every week as far as I could see. And, and similarly, potentially, is there similar evidence that actually the diet now is really important for his long-term health? Uh, some, yes. Uh, I mentioned we have the example of sugar-sweetened beverages and colorectal cancer. We have more data for breast cancer than we do for other outcomes. So this is an area of research that I think is really important, but there's uh, unfortunately not very many studies. Uh, we've uh, with colleagues in uh, Denmark set up uh, a lifetime study there uh, where we collected data from uh, the largest population so far, but that group is only about 30 years old. Now, so they're just starting to enter the era when cancers are will be emerging. So I, I think you will have just made everybody who's a parent or a grandparent more paranoid about their children because we also know that this is an environment where 
like levels of ultra processed food are much higher for children in fact than they are for adults and where i feel i take my daughter to you know a birthday party every week and it's nothing but like highly highly refined white flour and, and sugar which is fine as a treat but if it's like all the time it becomes quite hard i think to convince her to eat anything else because after all you know this is designed to be so nice so i think what you're saying is that we do have to worry about it we do yes this uh, there's a lot of the problem is brewing uh during that period of life that's pretty clear so could we swap to something more positive? Because almost everybody listening to this is not a child. So like what was going to happen to them during their childhood is done. Clearly <laughs> true for you and me. Is it ever too late to change what we eat in a way that can really improve our health? Before I go to that, so I'm going to go back to childhood. <laughs> it's so interesting. But even the fracture risk has been uh, really interesting, the data there, that there's been this paradox for decades that uh, the main justification for consuming a lot of milk has been the calcium. And while you're growing up, you really need to drink a lot of milk uh, to build up the bones that will be with you for the rest of your life. And it does relate to the later in life too, the issues there. Uh, but we've seen for a long time that the countries that consume a lot of milk, the Northern European countries, actually have the highest fracture rates by quite a bit. And this is when later in life you fall over and you break your hip or break a, right. so a, a leg or something like that. Right, normally would have been a bruise is a hip fracture instead. One of the things that milk does, it promotes growth and it does make people taller and have longer bones. And that uh, we published a study uh, some years ago showing that height is actually a strong risk factor for hip fractures. And it's probably because we fall from a higher distance, but also just a long stick is easier to break than a short stick. And there's a greater torque with a, a, a long stick. And uh, so we looked at, at the childhood consumption of milk, and actually we saw that there wasn't a benefit of high milk for fracture risk later in life. In fact, it was in the opposite direction, uh, especially in boys at quite a, a higher uh, risk of hip fracture decades later uh, among the boys who consumed the most uh, milk. Is, uh, during childhood, and they were uh, taller too. Uh, part and it looks like at least that greater uh, bone length does explain part of the risk there. And there is no benefit for women, which is where I think we've heard all this thing about going through menopause that you need to make sure that you're, you know, you should be drinking milk because you should be getting calcium in order to avoid these fractures later. This is the data says this isn't true. We just don't see it, especially during childhood. Now, we do, calcium is essential, and we have to have enough, but what is enough? Uh, the, interesting, the country, in our, uh, looking across countries, uh, among the countries that have good data on fracture risk, the lowest fracture risk was in Indonesia, and they uh, don't consume any milk, uh, basically, after weaning. And uh, the calcium intake was 250 milligrams a day in their national survey. Uh, so... I think some of my colleagues for years have said, actually, we don't really need that much calcium as has been recommended. I think that's turning out to be true. Uh, it doesn't mean we shouldn't drink any dairy, uh, but this three or five, I was told we had to have four glasses of milk growing up in, in the Midwest. Uh, no, we don't need that much milk. Uh, some of it, uh, it's fine to have. You know, I think about when serving a day is not a bad uh, target to, to think about uh, some indication that it would be maybe best to have it as yogurt or some fermented product. But anyway, it's it's a really, I think, important example of 
this connection across the lifespan. Uh, and getting into your question about is it ever too late, it's clearly better to start on a healthy diet as soon as we can. But uh, for something like diabetes, uh, we know you can drop your risk in two days by a better lifestyle. That uh, in two days, physical like two days. Yes, that's pretty good. Two days, I'll take. <laughs> okay, yeah, as long as you as long as you do what you need to do, <laughs> not not like we're doing sitting here. Diabetes is not just an issue of too much glucose uh, and refined starch and sugar in our diet. A large part of it is insulin resistance, the resistance to the action of insulin. And uh, and our dietary studies actually it looks like factors that contribute to insulin resistance are actually more important or just as important as the uh, too much rapidly absorbed uh, starch uh, or glucose. There's studies going back a couple of decades that by just being physically active you, or using your muscles, uh, which are most of the insulin resistance is coming from muscles. And if you just exercise within about two hours, you drop your insulin resistance quite a bit. And uh, that persists for about two days. Uh, and if you exercise your muscles every two days, you'll stay at a low level of insulin resistance. So if someone was listening to this who's in their 60s or their 70s, and they're saying, wow, you know, a lot of your guidance is really different to the guidance that I was told by my doctors and the government and all the rest of it um, 30 years ago. Are you saying to them, it makes sense to change your diet today? Or are they saying, well, you know what, I'm 70, right? Like, it's obviously too late. And I'm just going to keep, uh, it doesn't matter what I eat anymore. Definitely what you eat uh, today and tomorrow will make a, an important difference. Uh, and uh, if especially, you know, I'd like to maybe make the analogy of uh, sort of walking toward a cliff. Uh, that we're going along and eating an unhealthy diet and we're getting very close to going over that cliff. If you just stop uh, before, two steps before the cliff, you won't fall off. And uh, that's sort of the way we are. Or another analogy may be with uh, our coronary arteries, which in some ways are very simplistically like a pipe. If we're accumulating uh, atherosclerosis over time and they're getting close to the point uh, blocking that artery, and we stop that progression, then we prevent the heart attack. And your analogy here is if you were to change to a much healthier diet, you're effectively stopping walking towards that cliff. So it's not too late. Yes. It's not like you're just going to fall off the cliff. There's nothing you can do. Actually, you can change your diet even at that very late stage when you're very close to the cliff and, and you will no longer fall off it. Right, exactly. And what it means is the time relationship is quite asymmetrical. It takes years to get to that point of a precarious artery or falling off the cliff. Uh, but then if you stop getting worse, then you can stop that progression, stop crossing that line or uh, stop a heart attack. I think that's incredibly positive. And um, I think it matches actually a lot to what we, we see with um, members who, who take part in, in Zoe, actually, then in the sense that as you're, uh, as you've probably gone, you're, you're describing how we start to take this damage even as uh, as children. So by the time you're in your 50s, your 60s, or 70s, that's a lot. And interestingly, I think often we see particularly strong and rapid changes in how people 
feel. Um, and I guess the point is at that point, there is this dramatic change. Now, Walter, we've talked a lot about changes in guidelines and thoughts. So I, I'd love to ask you one final question around that. Um, I'm, I'm curious about how you feel about current sort of American guidelines to the public on what to eat. So let's say sort of USDA and my plate here in 2023. And we know that these things, there's always a sort of lag between what the guidelines might be and where the latest science is. Um, and that's, and, and you know, for people listening outside of the US, you know, this is very similar to the guidance that that is being given in in the UK, for example, by the NHS. Are there any areas where you, where you feel that isn't fully aligned with your views today? Yes, uh, there's some serious divergence. And the guidelines over time have gotten better. They, I think there's a lag between where the science is and the guidelines, but uh, they were uh, totally directed to fat avoidance, uh, if we go back a few decades. And they're, they've shifted quite a bit to emphasize not reducing fat intake, but more focused on type of fat. They've, uh, didn't mention trans fat for a long time. Uh, they they finally did, and then we got rid of it. And they more emphasized the type of the carbohydrates. So those are important differences. But uh, you can't touch animal sources of uh, protein, basically meat and dairy, and the guidelines. And and since the guidelines are corrupted by powerful economic interests, uh, and that's partly mediated through Congress which it's, this is baked into our constitution that every state gets two senators and the electoral college or presidency is also uh, very biased towards states with low populations. And uh, Congress even passed a law in 2015 that the guidelines could not even mention the effect of diet on environmental factors, climate change, for example, which is an existential crisis that the whole globe is facing. And so, even our Secretary of Agriculture said uh, about a year or two ago that he's not even going to suggest that people reduce red meat, despite all the evidence and despite the clear fact that red meat per serving has about 160 times more greenhouse gas emissions compared to a serving of beans or, or soy products. To say that you think the guidelines are, are corrupted and that you can't touch discussions around meat and dairy, for example, that sounds like pretty strong disagreement with, um, with, with what is being delivered as public health advice. Yeah, sadly it's so. And even outside of um, meat and dairy, I feel like what you've been describing around carbohydrates is a lot stronger than the standard advice that um, is given in um, in these guidelines? Uh, yes. They talk about added sugar. It wasn't till you got to page 64 in a footnote that added sugar meant sugar-sweetened beverages. It's obfuscated and uh, grams of added sugar. And obfuscated is a very scientist word, but does this make you angry, Walter? It does. Yes, it, 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 because it's it's causing premature death and suffering. You could say that the the big soda companies have blood on their hands. Uh, they are making children sick and die sooner. It, it, it is a serious issue. I think that's really powerful. And I also think your point about the way in which a lot of this is hidden. So I think for a lot of parents, um, and I, honestly, I was the same way six years ago. I think about the difference as I think about my, my young daughter versus my son. I was like, well, okay, Coca-Cola's bad, but 
you know, orange juice or one of these other like apple juice, that's like a really good healthy thing. And now I understand it's very close. It's basically water with lots and lots of sugar in it. So I, I feel also quite angry that we're asking people to understand things at a level that we would never ask elsewhere from some other. Nobody asks us to understand how our, you know, power, you know, how to, how our car can be safe, right? We rely on the government to make sure the car is really safe when we get in and we drive, and they are incredibly safe now. I do understand that. I feel that the more I've understood it, the more um, angry I am, because this isn't just about choice, right? It's about making sure that people are well inf informed. And particularly, I think if you're thinking about things like like children, where you actually you've slightly terrified me with the extent to which my children might eat could be affecting their health in in thirty or forty years. Yes, it, it's it's worrisome, and I think that it's not just that we haven't provided the information, but we allow them to be exploited by aggressive advertising and uh, just to make money on the part of uh, the big soda industry and, and and junk food industry. Walter, I'd love to go from like the the big picture of what's going on in government advice on the rest of it to sort of actionable advice for, for our listeners. And I think a lot of people will be listening to this saying, like, this is really fascinating. And also, you know, this isn't just the same advice maybe as I'd, I'd understood historically. So if someone was listening to this and they want to change their diet to make it healthier, would you be able to maybe suggest like three tips, like your top three things that you might suggest to them that might be changes that they could do that could really have an impact on their long-term health? Right. Uh, of course, you're asking me something I try to avoid because it really is not just so simple as three things. It's uh, it, it's putting the whole package together, but uh, realizing that every, it's not everybody's ready to do that all at once. But uh, I, I think uh, the biggest single sort of offender is sugar-sweetened beverages and uh, really keeping those very low uh, uh, occasional treats. And uh, second, uh, at this point in time, the, the massive amounts of refined starch and sugar uh, in our diet in, in general. And then, of course, uh, I think where there'd be uniform agreement uh, that uh, more fruits and vegetables uh, uh, is uh, part of our daily diets would be good. The industry likes to say that we should emphasize the positive but that's, of course, obfuscating that there's a lot of bad things in our diet, too. But anyway, those would be uh, three areas where just even those would make a huge difference. And it sounds like one of the ways you're saying you're doing this is like it's the things you're swapping out. So it's like reducing the red meat instead of replacing that with more potatoes, which you're saying is one of the things that's actually really bad. It's moving that towards these things that are more whole grain that you described where like not all the good stuff has been removed. Exactly. We had a lot of questions about vitamins because this is an enormous um, industry. And a lot of people were saying, asking us, well, you know, do people, if they are eating well, do they need to take vitamins um, in addition? What's your perspective on that? That's a good point. If you're uh, really eating a sort of optimal diet, uh, you we may not need extra vitamin supplements. What in particular we won't get is vitamin D, that uh, even from a very healthy diet, the vitamin D would be quite low uh, uh, because mostly we get that from sun exposure. And in northern climates, we uh, get much less sun exposure than uh, we would in tropical climates. 
uh, and if we try to get too much sun exposure, we'll, we'll likely get skin cancer, uh, which is serious also. So I think the best uh, way to make sure we get enough vitamin D is by taking a vitamin D supplement. And I do know that in UK that's actually recommended now. There's also the reality that it's it's hard to have an ideal diet for most people. That uh, I, I try to do that, but I'm traveling and not always uh, where I can have an, an ideal not meal. And also uh, an important recent study showing that uh, taking a standard low-cost RDA level uh, vitamin mineral supplement costs less than 10 cents a day. That actually uh, reduced uh, the rate of cognitive decline, which is pretty important issue for the, for anybody over 40. Uh, we do prefer not to end up demented in our later years. So I think you can take you can get your vitamin D that way if you have a supplement that's 800 or 1,000 international units of vitamin D plus is a low-cost RDA level uh, vitamin supplement. It uh, does make sense for most people. After age 45, some people don't absorb vitamin B12 as well and uh, end up low in that. So it gives us sort of a, a nutritional safety net, not to be a mega vitamin superpower kind of a thing, but just making sure that we don't have some some holes in our diet, which it's uh, most people do actually. So it's a, it's a sort of safety net if you aren't eating this sort of like really great uh, loads of whole food and fresh vegetables and all the rest of it. Then it's a way to make sure. And you're saying it's like you just need to recommend it. Uh, daily intake this is like 10 cents a day so this is just your standard one one pill a day and, right. and Walter do you do, yeah. do you do this yourself yeah so I, I do and it's not it definitely is not instead of a healthy diet because there's lots of things we get in a healthy diet that are not going to be part of uh, that uh, vitamin supplement brilliant I have one final question Walter and then I'd, I'd love to do a quick summing summing up which is What's the area of research that you're most excited about that you might be talking to us about in, in a few years' time where you feel we don't have the, the answer right now? Well, I think at the answer, the life spectrum are the most interesting because most of our data comes from sort of middle life and uh, sort of uh, diet during childhood and adolescence and how that does relate to later life risk. Uh, uh, that is an area that we're just recently starting to have enough data to look at. And then at the older ages to uh, neurodegenerative conditions, uh, including uh, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, uh, Parkinson's disease. Those are areas that uh, we're, we're just building up a substantial body of evidence in those areas. That will be fascinating to understand. And I know a lot of listeners, obviously, these are the, the things that we're all scared of. And we'd like to understand better what we can do ourselves um, to try and reduce those risks. Actually, in the last 10 years, we have learned quite a bit about that, but it's clearly an area where more data, more evidence will be valuable. Could say we've just, after 2,000 years, rediscovered the Mediterranean diet. I was going to say, could you wrap up by explaining when you say the Mediterranean diet, that there's like the core diet that would help uh, you know, prevent those diseases? What, what are those components? Well, I, I should usually try to insert the adjective traditional Mediterranean diet because it's not what people are eating today. It's what people were eating back in the 1960s. And it really was a primarily plant-based diet, but not a vegan diet. It had a, a small amount of meat in it, uh, more emphasizing in most places fish, but uh, emphasizing uh, large amounts of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, and the type of fat being uh, in that uh, tradition, olive oil. But we're seeing other uh, 
and hydrogenated plant oil, soybean, canola oil are also uh, pretty healthy and uh, uh, maybe fit with other dietary patterns as well. So it's, it's basically healthy sources of fats, healthy sources of carbohydrates, healthy protein sources, lots of fruits and vegetables, and uh, put that together. And uh, you could put it together in thousands of different ways. That will have very important uh, health benefits, both by uh, not getting too much of some uh, less healthy parts of the diet, but getting uh, an abundance of health-promoting parts of the diet. I love that. Um, and it is interesting how how much of nutrition seems to be about getting back to the advice that maybe my, you know, my grandparent my grandparents were brought up with about what one was supposed to eat, and we seem to have gone on this very long detour to start to be heading back and saying that maybe they knew more than we thought they did. It depends where your grandparents live. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure that I'm sure Not that mine. is. <laughs> maybe got a little bit further back. Walter, I would love to try and summarize today, and we were very wide-ranging, so I'm going to do my best to pull that together, and do please correct me anywhere I've, I've got wrong, if that's okay. We started by saying, you know, what do we think now when you look at all your data? So you've got this amazing data spanning hundreds of thousands of people since 1980, and that through this period, what you now understand is really unhealthy has actually shifted quite a lot. So in the 1980s, you thought that fat was really the villain. And it turns out that hasn't really been true. And interestingly, the number one thing you talked about is the fact that probably 80% of the carbohydrates that we're now eating are unhealthy. And you talk very much about not just sugars, but interestingly, these starchy foods. And so you were talking about potatoes and white rice and white flour, which is then turning up in anything from white bread to you know almost anything. These beverages so the sugary drinks are a are a big problem but interestingly that's shifted from being really obvious things like you know everybody listens know that coca-cola is bad to saying actually we just shifted to these other sugary drinks you know the orange juices and the apple juice and all the rest of it and actually they're a huge problem you also said really explicitly that advertising is a big issue and not a lot of people on the show are maybe as uh, forthright and I think that's wonderful to hear that you know there is a lot of advertising a lot of it you know being directed at children as well as adults taking advantage of pushing these foods which are very cheap for them and which you say are really a really a problem um, that we understand basically the whole grain is good for us and what's happening is that two-thirds of these grains have been removed we're just being left with this starch, which almost immediately turns into sugar when it goes into our body. And that is like what's starting off this race towards type 2 diabetes and other diseases. Um, then we shifted a bit and we talked about red meat. Um, and you said, you, you know, looking through all the data, it's really clear this is not good for us. We don't need to be eating it all the time. You know, and if you do want to eat it, you should be thinking about it as as a treat rather than I think you described growing up and having it three times three times a day. We talked a bit about, I think, some really interesting new research where where you're saying we, we now see, I think really for the first time, that what we eat as children and adolescents has a profound impact on our health later. And for example, this, I think, really scary idea that the food that, you know, a young girl might be eating is going to affect their breast cancer risk later. And therefore, we do need to think hard about what our children and, and grandchildren are um, eating. 
18. And that's also true for heart disease, where you can see already at 18 that the food we're eating is starting to affect our arteries. But on the other hand, you said very positively, um, you could be listening to this right now in 75 and you had this analogy of like walking towards the edge of the cliff of the thing that's going to make you really sick. You could change your diet right now and you could stop walking towards the cliff. And therefore, even though you might only be, you know, a, a foot away, a few centimeters away from, from the edge, you can make that change, which I, I find incredibly positive. We talked about the way that there are real issues with government guidelines. You were really strong. Um, you know, I think you actually said corrupted when you describe it and that therefore there is a real gap, particularly around things like meat and dairy, where you think they're nothing like as strong as the scientific evidence, but also even around sort of whole grains and things like this, that they're just not as strong as the as the science really discusses, which I think is a fascinating topic I'd like to do a whole, a whole podcast on. And then finally, you said, okay, what about some really actionable advice? And I think we picked up lots of different things during the talk. But when you came down to like your three tips, you know, your number one, I think is if you're drinking any sugar sweetened beverages, then stop. Your second one is reduce refined starch and sugar in your diet. And this might be things like white rice and potatoes that you might not really have been aware as being quite negative. It's not only thinking about like sugar in your diet, it's not only white, white bread and replace that with a lot more, there's your third thing, a lot more fruits and, and vegetables. We talked about a couple of other interesting things like that you do take a, a vitamin supplement uh, daily. So you figured that that makes sense. You taught that you'd reverse your view on soy. So I definitely take away that I should be making sure that there's soy in my diet, which I think for most of us in the West tends to be very small. And then I think you summed it up by all saying, actually, we just need to eat the way that our ancestors did 2000 years ago with this traditional Mediterranean diet. It's mainly plant-based. You know, there might be a small amount of meat, it's often fish, in fact, lots of fruit and vegetable, lots of whole grains, lots of olive oil. And if you could switch to that, you could actually profoundly reduce your risk of, you know, dementia and heart disease and all these things that we, we feel will rob us of the, you know, the end of life that we want to have. You could nail my class. <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, I thought that was a masterclass. I would love to follow up. Maybe we can do something next time I'm in, um, in Boston, because I think there's so many areas that would be fascinating to dig into more detail. Thank you so much for taking your time to really explain what is coming out of the research, as you know, as you continue to learn more. Thank you, Jonathan, and I look forward to seeing you in Boston. Thank you, Walter, for joining me on Zoe's Science and Nutrition today. It's been incredible to have Walter on the show today, sharing his knowledge about how what we eat is linked with our long-term health and our risk of disease. Now, if after listening to this conversation, you'd like more science-backed tips from our podcast, you can actually download our free guide with our top 10 most impactful podcast insights by simply going to zoe.com slash podcast. Here, you can also find out more about how a Zoe membership can help you improve your diet and get 10% off. As always, I'm your host, Jonathan Wolfe. Zoe Science and Nutrition is produced by Yellow Hewins Martin, Richard Willen, and Tilly Fulford. See you next time.